good afternoon. Welcome to the Comfort Monk Podcast. This week we've got Dylan talking to the uh, singer-songwriter Langhorn Slim, who just put out an excellent album. What do you what do you think about uh, y'all's conversation, Dylan? Well, I had a good time, man. I I, uh, I got turned on to his music so long ago, probably when I was in like early high school, and got to see him in some small clubs back then, and then kind of just kept up with his career ever since. He's done big things. I mean, he's a absolute road warrior and uh, just has this dedication to the songwriting craft that I uh, admire a lot. Um, you know, he's just constantly thinking and about, you know, about words and melodies and just trying to grow as a songwriter. And you can definitely hear it. You know, I think he started off, you know, his very first stuff is really impressive. So, you know, it's, uh, to to still have that much room for growth despite starting out so strong i think is a testament to his skill set as a songwriter super catchy but yet uh you know still kind of exciting and not predictable in any way um his newest record is called strawberry mansion and yeah it's really really good it's kind of a little bit more scaled down um all of it was recorded during the pandemic so definitely like less percussive things going on um but a lot of interesting textural and like tonal differences of this record between his you know in comparison to some of his other work i mean, specifically a lot of the electric guitar stuff is just like there's some things going on that i oh, i kind of wish i'd picked his brain about a little bit more just because i'm curious how he's getting that uh that tone but yeah, it's just a beautiful record. Very uh, consistent with his the rest of his career in the sense that there's a lot of like concise but effective and compelling songs, um, but a lot to latch on to and a lot to appreciate. So I think you guys are going to dig it. It was great talking to this guy who's a lifer of, uh, you know, just pursuing his art. And I think he's, you know, a legend in many ways. So it was really awesome to chat with him. But yeah, thanks for listening, guys. This is our episode with Langhorn Slim. Enjoy. Summer will see the Eiffel Tower Fall in love with an undrawn lover How long must we fall to pieces Until we come undone Man, this new record feels tonally and uh, like thematically pretty different in a lot of ways. And mm -hmm. I guess I'm just kind of curious, you know, was, was it mostly recorded and written like during the pandemic? Entirely. Yeah. Okay. Um, the song started to come, I think, in March. It was the first or second month of the lockdown here in Nashville. And... That was that was when I you started to write. They were they sort of felt like um, quarantine jingles at first. They were pretty like on the nose. There was a tornado that hit Nashville. Um, that was really uh, a gnarly event. And then a, like a week and a half after that, we were in uh, we were in the pandemic times, and. Uh, and, you know, locked in pretty much. So, yeah, songs just started to flow through and, and thank goodness they didn't stop. Um, 
it didn't stop for a while. So that's that's how there was a record made. I wasn't trying to write a record or had any intention or expectation. And maybe we'll get into that if you'd like as we go. But I, in retrospect, I think that might be part of why songs continued to come because I didn't really have any... Um, I wasn't uh, suffocating any kind of creativity in a, in any way at, at that time. I was kind of just, there was a wave that was letting me ride. But I think without any um, preconceived expectation or preciousness um, as, as far as like what I was working on or working toward, it was able to remain in sort of the ether and allow me to dance with it um, that's my little analysis of, of how yeah. that might have happened, you know. Well, it definitely seems like the faucet was wide open because, I mean, you know, there's 22 tracks on the record, right? And I feel like there's – it kind of – I you know, I don't want to speak for you, but it feels like just by the nature of the songs, like there could very well be songs that didn't – you know, that were left on the cutting room floor or whatever because um, yeah, it just seems was. like it was like pouring out of you at the time. True. Yeah. In a way that I haven't experienced, I I've gone through bouts of, um, you know, not writing for a little while, but nothing like <clears throat> the year or so leading up to this last year. And I wasn't writing hardly at all. Uh, was really felt really disconnected from the source, um, from my own creativity. And it took, you know, making some changes in in my life um and then you know changes that i would have zero control over whatsoever and you know in the outside world happening that um yeah something kind of broke open and um not since when i i don't think i remember i think not since i learned to play guitar like learned some nirvana songs when i was a kid and i wrote a bunch because i was it was you know, when, when it's brand new and you fall in love, as I know you understand, um, you haven't developed any any tricks of the trade, really. It's it's just like a it's a vast sea. And I, I find that's that vast sea or that like childlike wonder um, with my own creativity is something that you, as you go, you can. Um, you can kind of lose that a little bit at times and then try to get back, you know, try to get back to it. So I don't know how, how it all happened, but all of a sudden it felt, it felt brand new, um, which was an overwhelmingly beautiful experience to have with my own, um, my own, I guess, journey uh, in life and, and with my own creativity where it could just kind of um, just happen without, uh, without a lot of bullshit. Um, you know, j it, it just felt very immediate. And, and that's how we recorded the record as well. Um, we really tried to stay true to <clears throat> recording the songs. I think the most we recorded any were like three, of, three tries at it. And a lot of what's on the record is sort of the first try. And just to not not to overthink it. Yeah, I think that translates pretty well. And one of the you know one of the there's a lot of individual lines that jumped out at me uh, lyrically, but one that I think was maybe the most striking, or at least uh, on my you know on first impressions, was the line uh, 
living through the death of introspection, uh, riding home in the opposite direction. It just feels like a very uh, succinct and like concise way of describing a feeling that is not typically very easy to put into words, let alone so few words, uh, which I think might be one of the things that just historically throughout your catalog has been the most moving is your way to, there's almost a certain level of minimalism to your lyrics at times that I think is beautiful because you never say, you never say too much, but yet a lot of your smaller uh, subtle lines end up being some of the most powerful things, you know, and that's that one in particular. I, I think that. it seems like that one's pretty in line with what you, what you've been exploring a lot. This kind of, like you're saying, finding that childlike enthusiasm and, and just kind of, which I think, you know, seems logical that that would lead to this re this, uh, new spark of creativity and, and this pretty impressive output. Um, thank you. Have you I appreciate that. Oh, absolutely, man. Have you been sitting on any other songs? I know you've been doing those Instagram little ditties and just kind of like these small songs. Are you um, are you working towards a... I mean, I know that you're hitting the, the new record cycle right now, but have you already started kind of thinking about what's next? Well, I mean, I'm not writing at, at the velocity that I was there for a few months. I, I'm I'm very superstitious. I'm working on that. Uh, I don't know that I want to be as superstitious um, as I have been, but like I, I kept, I kept uh, these songs. Like, like, what am I trying to say? I didn't realize that I was going to make a record and I wasn't really uh, talking to anybody about me making a record because I was still sort of in awe that there were so many songs um, revealing themselves <clears throat> and then i find that once it gets into sort of a physical tangible situation where you're going to go into a studio uh and then you know the record's done and it comes out and i get to talk to some people about it um that that is all beautiful particularly when it's all beautiful um but it does at least in my experience, and I haven't totally figured that out, it does seem to cut the cord a little bit of the flow of that, um, that energy. Maybe it's just because you're putting energy into the other realms of this thing. Um, I don't know. But songs have, thankfully, they've continued uh, to come. Um, it hasn't, it, they haven't gone away entirely, which I'm very happy and grateful for. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm trying just, I'll, I'll have these, these w thoughts of like, I should get into a studio right away and record this batch of songs, but all of that winds up leading me to uh, a feeling that I don't like. And, and I think that this record, the strawberry mansion, uh, record is just a gift. If I allow it, it's a teacher to me, if I allow uh, myself to be a student of, I didn't have any thoughts about it. I just let it ride. And so now anything else that's coming through, I'm just trying to do the same and not try to even make plans as to what to do next because I've tried to control things a lot in my life. And I find when, <clears throat> when I try to control things and put a lot of energy, I block, I block things. I block the things that I love. And so it's been kind of... Um, a new 
uh, how do I how do I say a new way of dancing to 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 notice when that's coming up or if I'm trying to um, force something or control something or get ahead of myself and and try to pause and take a breath, um, which is which is challenging for me <laughs> to be honest about it. So no plan right now other than to um, to talk to some folks about this record. Uh, I'm still pretty much in quarantine land over here. Get out a little bit, but um, I'm not on tour, obviously. Very few of us are. And I don't know when we will be back on tour. So though I don't like the reasons for it, I'm also trying to embrace um, a slower, a slower uh, pace and, and a more simplified life <laughs> to the best of my abilities. Yeah, I think that's uh, something that uh, a lot of creative friends of mine have been bringing up just that, you know, prior to this, it felt almost like everyone was running full speed on a treadmill and didn't realize or want a breather, but maybe in some ways, despite the horrible context, maybe that breather is somewhat important. Um, you know, if nothing else, it's leading to people hunkering down and writing 22 plus songs like yourself. So there's, well, and for better, for worse, if there is better, worse, um, whatever falls in between, it's it's forcing us to, I think, at least for me, to confront certain things, to confront myself in in ways that I have not in the past, and that I I was I've been able to to sort of run at every whim my entire adult life, you know, being a touring musician boy and. Uh, I've done that, you know, with drugs and alcohol a lot of my life and relationships and on and on. And not not to say that that running is always running away from. I think you're, you know, one can run toward as well. And a lot of my, a lot of my running, I'm, I'm, I don't regret any of it. Um, but it's something I've never experienced. I mean, I've never been home for this amount of time. I know a lot of people can relate to that. I haven't been home for this amount of time um, since I'm, since I'm a child, you know, in Pennsylvania. So it's, um, it's provided opportunities to, to learn and to grow in a time that I, I, on a deeply personal level, I I desperately needed it because I was running myself, uh, I was I was on my last legs there for for a bit, and it just happened to coincide with a sort of forced um, slowing your ass down situation. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm hoping this time spent in the cocoon is uh, is nothing but helpful for you as far as your uh, you know putting you in a positive headspace and just helping you you know keep this beautiful project going, man. It's funny how long I've been. Uh, you know, that, uh, that your music and your craft has been, you know, at least in close proximity to my life. I, I got turned on to your music years and years ago. Um, and man, I saw you play for the first time in, uh, Mount Pleasant, uh, South Carolina. At, I think it was the village tavern when I was, wow. I was still, uh, I don't even think I, yeah, I was still in high school at the time, which is wild to think about, but, um, yeah, man, it's just your your career has been really fun to follow, and and like you said, I mean, if maybe more so than uh, some of your peers, or or at least some 
some of the bands that I've kept up with over the years, like I've always thought of you as so uh, just like particularly active as far as your tour life. And like, that's a huge part of, you know, all of your records are, are, uh, you know, produced well and sound fantastic, but there's something about the context of seeing you live that I think, uh, um, has just become like a very almost not necessary, but definitely like a huge puzzle piece to, to what you're doing because I've always compared you to people. Uh, and I think one time, uh, years ago, you and I shared a bill together and I, I brought this up to you, but like, I, I, I've always thought of you as like the Otis Redding of folk rock in the sense that you, (laughs) you command the stage, man. Like you are, you are a performer, but in the best way. So I know that it has to be. In my dreams. Am I that? In my dreams. (laughs) Otis is my favorite singer. Mine too, man. I appreciate. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's the best. Um, uh, That's all very kind and I deeply appreciate it. For me, I've, I always felt like the gift that I was given uh, was more was more in in live performance, and uh, and I was performing before I ever played music, but it was just called misbehaving, and I would just get in trouble as a kid. And <laughs> when I was lucky enough to discover the guitar and, and music that I loved, that that wasn't you know. Um, on the radio and started to really explore that. Um, and then started writing some songs. I just took what, what I had and started performing immediately at open mics and just really was drawn to the, the live element of it and still am like, I don't, I respect all like the live stream hustle for me. It's, it's really, I don't even really wrap my mind around it because I, um, one, I'm, I'm sort of frightened of my computer and two, uh, I'm such a whore for the connection with the audience. And I just didn't, from a young age, when I started, I, um, I was gifted opportunities to go on tour with, with bigger bands and be the opening act. And I was gifted the opportunity to, to, to start to get a little bit busy and make a few bucks doing it. And it just never occurred to me that there was another way of doing it for many years. I just thought that if you played me, I don't know, maybe if you're Beyonce or, I mean, I'm sure she tore her ass off, but like, if you're not like a huge pop star, I shouldn't even say that. Those guys probably tour a lot. I just don't really know their touring schedules. I, guess I, get, my I think I know what you're getting at though. Like the Harry Nielsen's of the world who just choose to, to never play shows, you know, so that is a, an avenue, oh, well, but yeah, I respect the heck out of that too. I think that yeah. might, I might become that in my older age, but I respect whatever it is. I just, for me, I wasn't comparing myself to others in that regard. It just, um, all I wanted to do as a kid was to get out of my, the little town in Pennsylvania, uh, to get out of school and, and to be wild <laughs> and to play music. And to, and to join a band. And so as soon as I moved to New York when I was 18 or so, as soon as those pieces like just started to come together, it, there was never any other idea or plan B. It didn't matter 
I mean, it mattered. I had my feelings hurt if people didn't like what I was doing. Uh, it made me feel nice. If some people liked what I was doing. Um, but I, it, not, none of it ever uh, fractured the, the, the dream of like, that's just what I was going to do. And I just didn't realize that you didn't necessarily have to be on tour for, for nine or 10 months out of the year, every year for many years until I got to a point um, that I did realize there were other ways of doing it and that I might be able to perform better and be a better bandmate and friend and be a little healthier to myself if, if we slowed it down a little bit and eventually we did. Yeah. No, I think that's a uh, part of growing up and, and being in the game as long as you have is that you're going to get these new perspectives and little micro epiphanies, you know? Um, as I mean, if, if you like, you got to find that you got, it's not one suit that fits forever. I think you got to keep trying on various suits and some, some suits that look shitty today are going to look dope in a couple of years. So it's just keep trying to be open to, uh, to a different, uh, pair of pants or something. We'll well, ride that been... analogy into the, into the ground. <laughs> yeah. Well, to, just to bury it a little deeper now that you've been in Nashville so long, uh, you might look pretty good in, in one of the classic nudie suits. Um, that might be all, the, the... all respect for the classic nudie suit. It's a little different than my, than my vibe. I love them. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but I, I'm more of like, I don't know, man. I, I, I still want my perfect like Sinatra style suit or something like that. Oh, yeah. That could be your new. That could be it's my funny, new man. Suit. It happens on every time that I, pretty much every time I talk to somebody lately, some brief little venture into fashion talk happens, which I'm sitting here in a uh, flannel oh, I got shirt. You. I lost you there for a minute, man. <laughs> oh, I was just saying that. Uh, can you hear me now? I got you. Yep. Yeah, I was just saying that it seems like in every episode lately, fashion ends up coming up as like a touch point of, you know, just a, well, in our situation right now, it's just an analogy, but with other people, it's, it's, it is wild to think about how, how that kind of goes along with, with your trajectory, whether or not it's something that, you know, all these, we were talking to old punkers recently and, uh, this Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols growing up in Malcolm McLaren's shop yeah, sure. and just crazy to think about how that kind of pops up all throughout everybody's life, whether or not they're trying yeah. to or not, but yeah, I mean, but it's, it's, it's important, I think, and it's real. I think that if we have to wear clothes at all, <laughs> that uh, that it's it's another color of creativity. So if we're gonna have to put on some kind of some kind of costume, I, I I always prefer to have some fun with it. So I I love I love uh, paying attention to to what what people are doing when they're when they're getting wild with their styles. Oh yeah, man. Well, dude, if you're willing to indulge me, I definitely would like to to kind of take things uh, way back and uh, you know hear about what life was like for you in that small town. I mean, I know you're saying you moved to New York when you were 18, but I would love to hear like about your first sparks of creativity there, how you kind of made it work while you were stuck there. Yeah. Um... I remember always thinking that I that I was uh, here. <laughs> this sounds a little. I'm trying to think of a way to 
well, I'll just say, I just always felt as a kid, like, uh, well, like so many others, like I didn't really fit in. And like, there was another reason for me to be here other than the waking up and going to school and learning about these things that really didn't make any sense to me, that didn't inspire me. Uh, you know, now as a grown up, I wish I paid attention to a few of those things because I have to like count on my fingers when I'm leaving a tip or something. But, um, but yeah, I think I just remember my brother, John, I got an older brother and, and he's just like, if you could just make it through this, you're, you're going to be fine. Like you're, you're creative, the things that are sort of looked at as, as, um, as you being a problem now, if you can kind of refine it a bit and, and, and just do well enough to get through this, these like, you know, the public school, which I didn't get through. They asked me to leave, which I really appreciated. And then I got to go to this little alternative school that did encourage me to be an art artsy kid um, that did encourage me to play music that didn't tell me, um, you know, it's, it's impossible to make a living doing that, or that's a stupid dream to have or, or whatever that they, they saw something in me that they, that they supported, but I just didn't feel like I, I fit into all of that for most of my like childhood. There were little blips and I had some teachers who were amazing, particularly at that high school that, um, that kind of went off book, you know, they didn't have to follow this uh, rigid curriculum that if, that if you don't fit into it, you're somehow uh, dumb or, or uh, unfit for a, for a happy life or some nonsense. Uh, and so I was lucky I got to go to a school like that. But as a, as a child, I've just felt like there, I had something inside of me, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to access that creativity. Um, and then music just knocked me out, you know, the hearing <clears throat> first time I heard, you know, punk rock music that wasn't played on the radio, but I love punk music that was played on the radio. I love the Beatles and the Kinks. I love Nirvana. Nirvana was huge for me when they came out, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, the Kinks, Bowie, all of that music kind of turned me on in such a way that I would, um, uh, aggressively find more of it uh, like so many people that love music and then then look into and devour those guys and girls's inspirations and and discover what was under all that um, and I think maybe feeling a little bit like an outcast um, in retrospect I didn't like it then it didn't feel good but I think it, it brought me inside. It brought me inside to my, my mom's house in the basement and in the bathroom playing my guitar and trying to figure out chords. And um, it never felt like I was practicing, um, which is good for a guy like me because I'm, I, somebody tried to teach me how to play guitar and like some Aerosmith riffs and like reading the music and I, I couldn't figure it out. So when it, when it sort of revealed itself to me in this more, for me, like a natural way, um, I just spent a lot of time <clears throat> listening to music and 
and playing music. And that was my Shangri-La that I could escape to. When the, when the bell would ring at school, I would just be psyched to go home and play. Do you remember, I mean, I know you're saying that when you first started kind of getting inspired by music, that a lot of it was, well, some of it was Beatles and Kinks, but some of it was a little more, uh, you know, aggressive and, you know, like the Nirvana and everything that you're listening to. Do you remember when you first kind of started to dig your heels in the musical direction that you landed on with, you know, with those first couple Langhorn records? Like what, what made you, I don't, I don't want to say that you've, I don't want to pigeonhole you as being acoustic based or folk, but I would say that there's a little bit of a, uh, sure. yeah, of a thread a of that throughout your career, at least. Don't label me, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, I, I, I started to hear like early blues music and early folk music uh, as a teenager. Um, I don't know exactly how or the first time that that really happened for me, but I know my high school sweetheart, Rebecca Horowitz, her dad uh, was a big fan of that kind of music. It still is. And he had the Harry Smith folk anthology <clears throat> at their place in uh, Villanova, Pennsylvania. And I cracked that thing open and I listened to it and it broke my brain. Like I thought this was music that was recorded on another planet. And then come to find it was recorded in, you know, primarily in like the rural South and in, um, in America. And I think at an early age, there was the, there was a rawness talk about punk music. I mean, punk for me goes so far back. Uh, it's ancient. It's just the raw, real deal. Like it's before the music becomes, I suppose, commercialized, but before it, it, when it's just the extension of the spirit of whatever that real emotion and feeling is. And to me, early blues music, um, early folk music, we were talking to Otis Redding. Um, and then in middle school, there was a kid that lived up the street, last house on the cul-de-sac. He had a minor threat uh, VHS cassette uh live at uh the 930 club the old 930 club so i would listen to muddy waters and i don't know david bowie or the kinks or whoever and then i would come home and uh obsessively watch <laughs> minor threat uh ironically later i started smoking weed and i would smoke weed while listening to minor threat which is uh <laughs> maybe that's against the rules but that's how i did it um and then became, you know, way into Bob Dylan uh, and, and, you know, the usual suspects. But so much of it was, for me, hearing, like, the rawest. I thought in order to be, like, raw when I was a kid, it had to be loud and electric. And then when I heard one man or one woman just with, the, with their voice and the piano or guitar or banjo, it, it just knocked me out, man. It was like that was the realest shit I'd ever heard. And it gave me, it gave me this like amazing gift of, of realizing that you didn't, you know, if you're a kid and you, you don't have a band in your suburban neighborhood in Pennsylvania or wherever it is, uh, you could still just go to the guitar or the piano or whatever your instrument is and make a big noise. Um, and 
Daniel Johnston was really big for me. Uh, my cousin Noah turned me on to him, had a bunch of his tapes. Um, the list goes on and on and on. But I, for whatever reason, I just grab it. I, I uh, don't know what that word is at the moment, but I connected to <laughs> a lot of that early folk blues music. And I have wondered, I've sort of wondered over the years with the, a lot of the music that I listen to, I'm like, oh man, it's weird that I play this other kind of music or that that's the extension of my creativity. Um, when I'm like driving around listening to Wu-Tang or something, not that I would be, you know, that wouldn't be very honest of me if I was trying to be Wu-Tang, but um, yeah, it's just whatever hits, man. And whatever, whatever seems to be uh, real and raw, that's the kind of, that's the, that's the stuff I, I live for. Well, I think true to your point about how, you know, in your, when you're first discovering some of that music, like some of the more punk end of the spectrum that you kind of, like you were saying, you almost think that it has to be loud and fast, like a minor threat record. But to me, you know, what could be more punk rock than Sister Rosetta Tharp howling away with a that beautiful white SG, you know what I mean? Like There is nothing it, more. There is nothing more punk rock than that. Um, or um, beautiful. Yeah. I was just thinking last night about how think about Thelonious Monk and how fucking wild that shit is and how early that is that, you know, we can all credit Stooges or, or, you know, people talk about the monks and all these bands, everybody's the first punk band or whatever. And it's like, well, I mean, maybe that seems like more of a stepping stone to what you've mentally what we call punk. locked yeah, out. Yeah. It, but yeah. it's, it, if it's, if it's a feeling, it goes way further back than anything involving uh, oh, it's ancient. It's way further back than this country is too. But I, I mean, those bands, I, I don't get hung up on that stuff personally. And that's fine to <clears throat> the dolls and the Stooges. I mean, I love that stuff. And, and that, like you said, that's a stepping stone for what we consider, how we think of it, Sex Pistols, all that. And, and that music, I still love it, still listen to it. Um, this is just, it's reminding me, and I, I'll screw the quote up, but there's this thing I read that I loved about Louis Armstrong and he was talking to his band um, and he had, he'd like taken them aside after the show or something. It was like play softer to play louder. And uh, I don't know, that's, that's not um, exactly probably what he said, but I love that concept of like finding space in the music. Um, You don't need to blow the horn to make the biggest, you don't need to blow it that hard to make the loudest noise. And that makes sense to me. And that's also something I've started to explore this last year with these, with these new songs and other ones, just like at home, you know, without a band and, um, and how I'm playing and singing. Like I've noticed if I'm slowing something, I don't know how to put it into words, really, but if, I'm, if I slow some things down and like, I've always sang really loud. If I, if I sing a little quieter, some of the songs, I feel like there's more depth to it and there's more, um, I don't know. There's, it, it's less like it's less forced. So I, there's a time and a place for it all, but it's interesting to me this the idea of uh, you know well, less is more, <laughs> which is something I've struggled with in my life, and uh, and that I deeply dig on a philosophical level. And you know, quieter can be louder. Yeah, I think that's a really unique uh, perspective, and you know, I mean, it might speak to why like. Uh, some of the most gut punching moments of a Langhorn Slim set or when you strip it down and you, uh, you know, uh, 
gosh, I'm going to butcher the line, but I've seen you sing quite a few of your songs where, you, you know, the band drops out and you're just practically unplugged up there, like, uh, and just, you know, off the mic, just singing, let the crowd kind of be on the same level with you, not even amplifying yourself anymore, yet it's still, uh, it's, you know, it's just as powerful as when the drums and uh, yeah, double bass. Yeah, and sometimes and more powerful just in, in bringing it down and kind of taking away the whole band on a stage audience out there vibe. Um, those are some of my favorite moments of a live show is, is that connection. I'm, I'm striving for that Pootie Tang thing <laughs> where he just, he just totally goes silent. And he oh, yeah, dude. Pootie off. Dunn did it again. Pootie Dunn did it again. So that's, <laughs> you know, Otis and Pootie, those are my guys. Hell yeah, man. I just more and more reason that I think you and I are kindred spirits, man. But, uh, no doubt, man. Well, man, uh, so you moved to New York. You're 18. Are you, were you still kind of doing the open mic scene, or had you already started? I know that eventually you picked up with the Trachtenberg Family Showcase yeah. players. What What's the story of that? Like, how did how did that all shake out? The slideshow players, yeah. They, um, they're a, they were a family band, and um, they used to go to this place, the Sidewalk Cafe, all the time. They live right down the street. Shit, I and, played there once. Small world, man. Yo, yeah, man. I played there every Monday for I don't know how long. That the they had um, it's called the Anti Anti Hoot, uh, and I had a girlfriend in in <clears throat> in college who was a bit older than me, and um, and she, so she graduated, and I would go to, uh, go to Brooklyn and and bother her. Uh, probably owe her an apology or two, but. Um, but she did a beautiful thing for me, which was she had looked up, um, which I probably wouldn't have done on my own. She looked up all these open mics in New York City and she cut them out of like the village voice and was like, yo, here's some places while you're hanging around the city. Why don't you go and play some of your songs? And I was probably pretty nervous to do that. I don't know. I think I, I most likely was. And then I, um, I decided to do it. I, I went. Uh, Sidewalk Cafe being probably the main one I would go to, but there was a handful that I would make the rounds at. <clears throat> and I just was fortunate, man. I was a little freak boy, I think. And I, I w if I was good at anything, it was making people uh, pay attention to me. Um, when, I, when I had my two songs up there, uh, I definitely wasn't practicing the less less is more technique or the quieter to be louder. I was as loud as I possibly could be uh, and throwing as much at the audience as I could, but it, it worked at the time. And I started getting, <clears throat> excuse me, some of those venues started offering my own shows. Latchet sidewalk did that. Um, then the Trachtenberg family slideshow players, they were like hitting it at the time and, and going on not even just national tours. They were going on tours out in Europe. And they brought me on on several of those. Um, one tour in Europe, I think, and, and several in, in the States. <laughs> Excuse me. What were you, what were you playing in that, in that project? Were you guitar mostly? Oh, that was just me. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't have a band. Oh, okay. Um, so you're saying you were opening for them. I, I, for some reason, I thought you also played with them. No. Yeah, so okay, gotcha. Over the, I don't know if something got written or something that was... <laughs> No, they they had their thing. 
and they um thankfully they they liked me and they would just sort of pick a few of us out of the scene at that time and bring us on the road um they were one of the bands there was a few who who were getting some attention and um like the moldy peaches were 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 doing their thing um jeffrey lewis was there regina specter uh uh nelly mckay there's and on and on there's a bunch of badasses that were coming out of that thing <clears throat> and they picked a few of us to go on these tours with them and, and support them but um but yeah that that was incredible it was my first my first time i uh, almost positive my first time to be on the road and i don't remember how long the sets were 30 minutes or something in front of packed houses um and that that was sort of the, the beginning, I think, of um, of going on tour, and you know, then obviously more people hear you slowly but surely. And um, I just kept playing anywhere I could. Like I just would play anywhere that I could. Never said no to anything. Uh, still have a hard time. I try to say no to a few things uh, these days, but um, but not to many. Uh, I played at some sports bar in New York. It was a championship game. They sent, set me up under two huge televisions uh, and endured the, the, the brunt of that from the, uh, from the sports fans. But, you know, just examples of all, all kinds of various things. I was a musical guest at this monthly um, comedy show which, with all the people that have just become like, you know, well-known comedians. I got to see them working out their stuff. Um, Eugene Merman and this guy Bobby Tisdale hosted this show, Invite Them Up, and that was that was amazing and, and a totally different audience than like the the folk or rock and roll kind of open mic circuit. So wherever wherever an opportunity came up, I just went at it um, went at it hard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I know that you've, you know, you've lived such a transient lifestyle, but uh, what was the next, like, what was your next place to call home after New York? Because I know that you, you probably took a time. There's probably been times where there may or may not have even really been a permanent residence, but. Yeah, there were definitely of- were. But at that time I was in, I was in uh, Chinatown. And then when I left New York, I went to San Francisco and um, I fell in love with a woman there, and she's from Napa Valley. So we lived in San Fran for a minute. When I was off to, I mean, I, I, sh- I shouldn't nec- you know, necessarily say I lived there. I would stay with her when I was off the road. And then uh, we, we moved up to Napa Valley um, in, our, in, our, in our mid-20s, which is an amazingly beautiful place. Um, and I'm so glad that I got to live there for a little time. I will say that for a, a, like a certifiable wino, um, it's a great place to live and, and maybe not the best. I, I learned how much I loved wine uh, in, in Northern California. Yeah, I imagine it's certainly harder to not uh, indulge your interest when you're surrounded by some of the best wine you can get your hands on. Yeah, and we were young and... I hadn't identified myself as an alcoholic at the time. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know, Napa is like New Orleans, only completely different, but it's similar in the sense that drinking at any time of the day in like a bar or restaurant 
is, you know, people aren't looking at you funny because people have traveled from all over the world to drink in these establishments at all times of day and night. Um, and yeah, like where I'm from, <clears throat> somebody would have a get together, a birthday party, you know, people would bring a six pack of uh, Yingling or Schlitz out there. People are bringing like fancy wines and, um, and I liked wine. I liked, I liked it a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see how that would be a slippery slope, man. Um, so how long were you in, I guess you weren't really, you were just there kind of on stopovers, but was that well, like, we, uh, we officially lived there for a couple of years and then, um, and then just got a little burnt out because it's, it's mainly wine and food industry. Um, and I didn't really know any fellow artists or musicians out that way. Um, outside of my ex um, and a couple other people. <laughs> and I started to, we started playing this festival called Pickathon out in, in Portland and getting, making friends in Portland. And my band was getting some love. And so Portland seemed like a good place to move to, which we did. She still lives there with her husband and her kid. And she and I lived there together for a couple of years until we split. And then, um, and when we split up, I just, I, call, I remember calling my booking agent and just saying, um, please put me on the road until uh, I ask you to get me off the road. And I don't know, about a decade went by until I finally was like, I think it's, uh, I think we should just slow this down a little bit. And Man. in that period, I didn't, that, that was more <clears throat> transient in the sense of for some years there, I didn't have a, I didn't have my own spot, um, wasn't in a relationship, uh, you know, was back to uh, some couches and, and stuff like that uh, until I moved to Nashville, which is um, at this point, I don't know, about eight years ago. Wow. I didn't realize you'd been there that long. It's, it's crazy, man. Time flies, regardless of if we're having fun or not. Yeah, so, it I, certainly does. Yeah, yeah. Well, where are you at as far as, uh, you know, your feelings towards Nashville. I know it's been a year where you've had to spend a lot of time there. Are you still, do you, do you love the place? Are you? I love the place. I love my house here. I'm very lucky to, to own a, a magical pink house. Um, I love my little community. Um, you know, it's interesting talking about trying on different suits. I mean, everybody's community has changed. Um, I suppose always, but in this last year, I mean, I'm not getting out, so I'm not, I'm not connected with like a, uh, some idea of like a social life really, but I've gotten closer with all my neighbors through this, which is a beautiful part of, of a sad situation. Um, and I've kind of, it's still, if I'm being real with you, it still is difficult for me to be still and it's still difficult for me to, be quiet um, and not just have a tour or this or that to kind of hit at every, at every whim. But in sitting through some of it, it's, it's been teaching me a lot and it's been, um, it's just been helping me in a, in a, I suppose a spiritual way, if you will. And so, yeah, Nashville is, is home. I, I've kind of uh, tried out every, every hipster town we've got in America, more or less. Um, 
I say hipster with love for the most part. But yeah, yeah. I've, I've lived in a bunch of the places, and if I haven't lived there, I've I've uh, I've crashed there, spent some time, and and there's just a certain kind of sweetness to this place that that I connect to, and and I just really appreciate. People say hi, people look at you in the eye, people stop and talk a little bit and that that ain't for everybody and i don't know why that's for me because i'm from the east coast where that's like <clears throat> people are really nice but it's it's not it's a different expression of of sweetness i would say but um but yeah i dig it it's it's been it's been really good to me and and i love it here for sure well speaking of that restlessness you know i mean i know that it can be having that kind of energy or maybe it, you know, what some people might think of as like excessive energy or restlessness, you know, it can feel frustrating, but I hope you're able to see it as a bit of a gift too. And hopefully in the, in this, you know, forced slowdown, I hope you're able to kind of explore some new stuff, you know, I mean, obviously you've absolutely on, you know, you've, you've, I w- nobody wants to say they mastered uh, their craft because it, I know you want to continue growing, but you've certainly accomplished a lot with your craft. And I hope that there's some uh, creative territory, musical or completely non-musical that you're able to uh, explore that you haven't already, you know, like, and same for you. And I completely agree. And in some of the interviews and talking about this stuff, I think I, I forget to mention what you just said so beautifully. There is such a gift to, to restlessness or to passion it's just, in my mind, it's how to dance with that. And for me, it's like, if I'm always needing something else, that's a restlessness that I don't want to exist in forever because then you, you never find, you're never really present, you know. Um, part of that restlessness and always needing something else has pushed me in ways that maybe some other people it doesn't to, to do certain things that, that I've gotten to do. So I'm, I'm grateful for it. I also just see it as... <clears throat> Not, not, not all good or all bad in any way, but just um, something for me to kind of refine or to lean into um, and, uh, and, and just to work on, on being more present with wherever I'm at. Yeah, and I think that maybe that's uh, another great feature of, of Strawberry Mansion is it feels very in the moment. It does, like you were saying earlier, it doesn't feel... Um, Nothing feels half baked, but nothing feels overcooked either. You know, I appreciate that. That's definitely how it felt on on our end. And <clears throat> there were some temptations from me to cook it a little bit more, and and we fought those temptations to just really keep it as simple as the songs themselves, how they how they came when they were written. So I'm glad to hear it sounds that way. Yeah, definitely. And I, I guess, you know, it does feel maybe uh, not completely uh, without the, the, you know, the full band sound here and there, but it does feel like uh, scaled down as far as like maybe less uh, percussive elements and things oh, yeah. like that. It, was that mostly a byproduct of just the the situation, you know, being uh, yes. not being able to collaborate in person as much? <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I've been wanting to do a, a very stripped-down record for a while, even like a solo kind of affair. There was a record called Lost at Last that that was actually my and, and our intention was to have it be like that, but um, it took another form, and I, I'm happy with the form that it, that it took. But it's something I've been wanting to do 
<clears throat> for a while and it just didn't it didn't happen um and with with this batch of songs and with the state of the of the world it it forced me to keep it real simple real stripped down and just super fortunate that my boy matt davidson who goes by twain for his music uh my dear brother and friend but also i think one of the best musicians and songwriters out there uh, and my my dear friend paul who was the first bass player oh, yeah. in our band, the, the War Eagles, when we first started in Brooklyn. Um, and now he and I both live in Nashville. <clears throat> Never lost touch, but uh, we've reconnected in a very deep way. Um, and yeah, does he, he lives play on, does, does Paul yeah, play, play on this new record? Oh, yeah. He plays and recorded it. It's recorded in his backyard studio. And that is super exciting to know. Somehow that detail missed me. I've always really appreciated his playing. And uh, when we, we had a boy. few... Oh, yeah, totally. And a few months back, we had Leo Romero, who's a songwriter sure. and skateboarder know, yeah. on. And he was working with Paul at the time, too. So just small world, so just man. It's crazy. Just to draw connection a little bit more. I don't know if you know Cracker Farm, Mike. Cracker Farm is a dear friend of Paul, Leo myself we've known him for many 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 years i've known mike for 20 years or so and he's real tight with leo takes some photos with him has taken photos for paul and i and, and video stuff he's just a great artist oh, yeah. um, and all i don't think they would mind me saying all paul and 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 mike cracker farm and me all sober guys at this point in our lives and uh have been able to i think further our our brotherhood through that that journey and and music and um and yeah just when it came up that this would be a record to actually press record and 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 try to make something of it um there there was no way to get the the rest of the band lives in different places in the country there was no way to safely um get them here and i didn't even think studios were open i didn't explore other you know um other types of studios in Nashville or elsewhere. So I called Pat, uh, sorry, I called Paul. Um, and he was down to do it. He, he's got this cool studio that he built in his backyard. Matt Twain was in Austin. He was down to come up. I sent them the voice memo demos. I think they listened to it a few times. They liked what they heard and, and they came up and, um, and we cut the thing in like a week and a half or so. That's awesome, man. Um, you know, I uh, speaking of this record and the and just how it kind of is. I don't know. I feel like maybe it just feels like a melting pot of like years and years of uh, of experience, kind of thrown into one neat package. But one thing that I I found that I've seen you uh, incorporate into your art a lot over the years, um, but that uh, pretty beautifully speaks to this record is that that love and affection you have for your relatives, uh, Sid and Jack, who seem to come up throughout your mm -hmm. songwriting a lot. And I, I read this morning about you saying you were playing that instrumental, which became Strawberry Mansion, and, and that you felt almost like the, the spirit of those two were kind of telling you, hey, name this, this song <laughs> Strawberry Mansion. I love that they've been such a such a heavy influence over you. I, I have a similar relationship to a, a grandparent that is – very much so informed my art. So it's, it's cool yeah. to hear that, that that's that. something that's been there for you, man. 
Oh, huge, man. Um, and, and you get it if you have that kind of relationship, too. Yeah, all my grandparents, Sydney and, and Jack are my grandfathers, and May and, and Ruth are my grandmothers, and just a huge part of my life. Growing up, I was super lucky to have them uh, into my 30s, uh, all of them into my 30s. And now Ruthie is, is the one that remains in the physical form uh, in this plane. But yeah, I feel them all around me and the love and the wisdom that they, uh, that they, um, they drenched my brother and I in, in just a lot of love. Um, and they, they had, they had that, that street smarts, like an ancient wisdom, you know, that it wasn't some shit that they had probably read in books. It was what they learned in their lives. And, um, yeah, I don't have the words for it, but. I love them all with all my heart. It's not the first time I pay tribute to them, as you said, in, in song and doubt it would be the last time, but uh, yeah, for different reasons, it just felt so, so right on to call it strawberry mansion, the neighborhood that they, uh, that my grandfathers grew up in. And were any of your grandparents or siblings or, or even mom and dad, were they, were they musical in nature? All love music, deep sensitivity to art and music. Um, my mom's a great singer. She didn't uh, pursue it professionally. She could have. Um, my grandpa Jack was a jazz drummer, and he was uh, <clears throat> he played in a swing band, big band, when he was in the war. He came back to to Philly after, and my grandma May was, I guess, waiting for him, and he decided to uh, to follow that band instead. And um, I just grew up with a ton of music around from show tunes and, and swing jazz uh, to uh, when I was 12 or 13, my cousin hit me with like an early pavement album and butthole surfers. And my brother loved Parliament Funkadelic and uh, Bikini Kill. And so it was just like a lot of different styles of music um, that I was, that I was kind of getting exposed to at an early age. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting to hear how that subtly informs things throughout throughout your catalog as well. You know, um, and, you it know, all gets it, in there. It all gets in there somehow. You know, everything that yeah, hits. It might, maybe in the most subtle of ways, but if you really dissect it, you can hear it for sure. Right on. Well, man, I uh, I can't say it enough how much I appreciate your dedication to the craft and. Uh, your appreciation and your just uh, your uh, execution of just showmanship, man. That's a uh, you've you're. I don't want to say it's a dying breed, but it's not what it. It's not, there's maybe it's just different than it used to be. You you take me back to, like I said, not to just beat the the Otis Redding idea into the ground, but it, you know the way that he comes out and does shake at Monterey Pop is how oh, I baby. feel when you come out and do whatever your opening number is. It's just it's fucking on and it's happening and you can't not one, one pay attention. Of, thank, thank you, brother. It means the world to me. One of my favorite uh, recordings of all time is Otis live at the whiskey a go, go. And it's, you hear the crowd. It, it, it's just amazing. You just hear the crowd freaking out and screaming. These arms of mine. And then he launches into these arms of mine. It's, it's just gives me the chills. You've been thinking about it. Yeah. It's the lines in between the songs that I think that, are, that almost make me think of, draw that parallel even more like the way that you know the song's over and he's got this great five second comment 
that is a perfect segue with it's the best. You know, with you know, yeah. they hit the one right after he says this amazing one-liner, and I think you perfected that art too. It's like maybe that's part of you growing up and cutting your teeth around comedians and other people. You have this timing, and it's like a James Brown esque, like hit it on the one, you know. <laughs> but well, I appreciate that. I do think that there was something to playing in sports bars and coffee shops and open mics that I think. Um, felt a little painful at times, but also like great wins. Cause when you could make those crowds quiet down and listen, it was like, that was the most amazing feeling in the world. And so I do think maybe you out of necessity <clears throat> survival, like you, you pick up little things that you don't even realize you're picking up just, just to make people turn their head a little bit, you know, when you're, when you're just starting. So I appreciate you saying that brother it means a lot to me. Yeah, man. If you can win over that crowd, you can win over just about any crowd. So, and I think uh, that's something you're fully capable of, man. I hope you have like, uh, as you know, I hope that this process of pushing the record, despite you know not being able to do the normal tour grind and everything, that it goes uh, as smoothly as it can, man. And and I'm I'm really that. excited that you're that you're, you know, despite this uh, insane world that we're living in, that you're still putting out music for us to appreciate. I mean, if nothing else, if we can't see you live, it, it, it definitely helps to be able to hear the art in whatever way we can get our hands on it. For sure. All, all around, man. Um, and there's, there's beauty in the madness. And I tried, I try not to lose sight of that. And I hope people won't lose sight of that too. It's a lot of noise in the world, but there is, uh, there's still love. There's still connection. There's still art. No motherfucker can take those things away from us. So that, that's us. right, man. Nobody's in charge of our happiness, but ourselves. So that's it's it, all brother. frame of mind. That's it. Well, brother. man, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome getting to know you a little better and pick your story apart, man. And yeah, hopefully we can touch base again down the road, man. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to, to meeting up again when, uh, when, when we can. I really yeah, come back through time. town. Maybe we can, uh, Hop on a bill together again. I'd love it. Sounds beautiful. Sounds beautiful. All right, man. Have a good night.